The following is a presentation of Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, awakening the best in the human spirit. What I thought was possible for me in growing up, going to college, and then coming into an acquaintance with the Buddhist teachings and the explosion of the sense of possibility, the opening that was so immense for me at that moment in my life and has continued to grow. Many of you know that I have a retreat center. My friends and I have a retreat center in Barry, Massachusetts. It's known as the Insight Meditation Society. We began it in 1976. We moved in, in on Valentine's Day of 1976. And Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I had spent a number of years in the very early 70s in Asia studying, practicing Buddhism. And then we came back to this country and we were teaching these different retreats. It was a very grassroots kind of operation in those days. People would write us a letter and say something like, well, I can get together a cook and 15 friends. Would you come and teach a retreat? And we'd say, sure, we'll come teach a retreat. Um, and at the end of that retreat, we actually didn't know if there'd ever be another retreat. And we just went around doing this for some time when a friend suggested to us that maybe we would do better to start a retreat center. It would serve as a sacred site in this country and a place to gather the energy of the practice. And so we did. We looked around for a place for a few months and finally somebody took us to Barry, Massachusetts where there was a Catholic novitiate for sale. We looked around and we were quite torn about what to do. On the one hand, it seemed perfect. It was just it's beautiful, uh, it's very quiet, there's really nothing happening there. But on the other hand, it seemed really big. It can hold easily 100 people, and here we were, we were just coming off this year or two of, of doing this very grassroots ad hoc operation, barely you know, knowing if um, there was gonna be another retreat the next month, and it just seemed so huge. We just couldn't imagine how many people in this country might ever become interested in learning how to meditate. And so in order to try to make up our minds, we went to downtown Barrie, which is about as big as this room. Um, and it's a very classical New England town. The center of the town is a town green. And in those days, there was a monument right in the center of the town green which had inscribed upon it the Barrytown motto. And it turned out that the Barrytown motto is tranquil and alert. So we looked at that and we said, okay, that's an omen. <laughs> Any town that has a, a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center. <laughs> and I still enjoy it quite a lot because the police cars come by and it says tranquil and alert on the doors. And, some friends of mine got married, actually in my living room, and Tranquil and Alert is stamped on their wedding certificate, which I think is not a bad blessing for marriage. Now, I was also reading not too long ago the, the rather slim volume, which is the history of Barry, the town of Barry. And it turns out that even though when we bought the building, it was a Catholic novitiate, the original part of the building, the main part of the building, was built as a mansion, as a private home by Colonel Gaston, 
who at one point was the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. And it turned out that Colonel Gaston, according to this book, had his own personal motto, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> which made me wonder how well he got along with his neighbors, who presumably were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. But I think of all that, or I say all that, because I think we do tend to have mottos. We have definitions of ourselves, of what we can do, what our lives are about, where the greatest meaning is to be found, where we can find something that will endure, that will not shatter, that will not change. Sometimes these are conscious, like Colonel Gaston's. Sometimes these are very limited, like Colonel Gaston's. Sometimes they're not so conscious. But part of this whole process for me in my life has been to, to make these mottos, these decisions, these aspirations conscious and to see where they are falsely limited, where, where I'm so inhibited, so held back. And to learn to open, to continually open to what might be possible. One of my teachers, one of my Tibetan teachers used to say, why aspire to something small? Why not aspire to the greatest, to full liberation for the sake of all beings, to a completely liberated heart, an awakened life for the sake of all beings? Why not? <clears throat> I find the title of our conversation very interesting. And of course, one of the only routes to it is through the biographical. And it's very interesting, you know, a friend of mine attended a book signing in Dublin recently by a guy called Coelho, Paolo Coelho. I have his stuff, but I haven't read it yet. But, uh, he looked into my friend's eyes and he wrote down in the book, Follow the Signs, which was a lovely book, a lovely way to sign a book. And obviously in your own journey, Sharon, the old signs announced themselves when you were ready and willing. And there's something in, um, written by Goethe which says that when the time is right, and the commitment is whole and natural, that then destiny comes to meet you and bless you in your journey. And um, I think it's, I think spirit is an amazing thing. And there's times you'd wish you hadn't it at all. <laughs> Honest to God. Because uh, at times I just look at uh, cows, animals, stones, trees, and very old people and children, and envy them deeply that they are not haunted by consciousness. Because if you are an old humanoid like, there are two choices. You either get involved a bit with a cosmic mystery, or you go shopping. So, you like, both. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can, you know. And uh, I, I think that once this thing, 
once this old spiritual thing starts awakening on you, it will never let you settle any longer in what T.S. Eliot in his poem, The Magi, calls the old dispensations. And almost like being in the restless ocean, you're always within a rhythm that's bringing you to new shorelines. And I often think that maybe in the Western Christian tradition that we have suffered immensely from dualism, where we've split what belongs together. And that's one of the lovely things about the Celtic tradition is it managed to embrace the whole lot. But we've split the mind from the body, the human from the divine, and the divine and the human from nature. And then very often our systems were ways of trying to build bridges across the divisions that we had falsely made. And a massive intentionality of will to bring us to perfection and goodness and the whole lot of it. And I often think that, that we're already there. This is pure heresy now, I'm sure. But I often think <laughs> that, that we're already home, do you know? But there's a small little bit, some splinter in the consciousness that's broken and that we feel exiled and outside. And that's why we're involved in practices, methods, and all the rest of it. But they all have only one intention, which is to enable us to inhabit presence. And it's all about presence and its sister absence. And without spirit, there'd be no presence at all. And the lovely thing about spirit is that Merleau-Ponty in one of his philosophy books says, there's no thought that can embrace all thought. Because you can always get one that will go outside it again. But the thing about spirit is that it seems to be the largest lyrical embrace that there is. And in other words, there's no place where spirit isn't present. And there is no one in whom it's not active. And that means that the under-earth of reality is alive with possibility. And if all humanoids make any little stir at all, you're already engaged and you're brought forward. And, the, and it's lovely, the spiritual world, that there's no maps for it and that everyone is a unique incarnation of it, and that no two trips are similar. And that even the one that's sitting beside you, if you love him or her and you know so much, you're still walking a different path to them. The beauty and the lonesomeness of that is an incredible mystery and an incredible sacrament. It's very Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, she's going to turn dangerously Christian in a minute. Now watch this. <laughs> well, because even though um, there's so much emphasis in uh, Buddhist traditions on effort, it's always called right effort. And it's not really at all a question of will or um, 
struggle or grim determination, but it's awakening. It's awakening to what already is, so that the only um, quality we are really eradicating, you might say, is ignorance. It's not trying to uh, remake a self in a, a, better, a better way. And the, there are really almost like two aspects to right effort. One is aspiration. It's really understanding. It's empowerment. It's personal empowerment that spirituality, enlightenment, freedom is for us. It's not for them long ago. It's not an, a reverential act saying, well, isn't that great? You know, the Buddha as a human being sat under a tree 2,500 years ago. Look what he did. Wow. Finished. It's really about us, every single one of us. So one aspect is, is the rightfulness of our aspiration and saying, yeah, I'm not left out. I'm right in the, the center of this, of this picture. And the other part of it is surrender. It's saying that it's almost like the orienting of our heart and the aiming of our heart is the critical step. And then the path unfolds or nature unfolds as, as it will. Um, with all experiences being included. I often think of spiritual practice or meditation practice as being a practice of inclusion. You know, an experience happens and we say, oh, well, not that. That's not a part of things. Or this aspect of myself is not worthy of love or compassion. Or that person is not worthy of love or compassion. And then we, we challenge that exclusion and learn to include. I also thought of something from T.S. Eliot in which he said, um, for us there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. And that very much is the, the spirit of meditation practice, is that we place ourselves there, we declare our willingness in a sense and our commitment and our dedication, and then we just see what unfolds. I think one of the great uh, spiritual experiences of my life happened when I was in an elevator in New York City checking into a hotel and I had one of those brilliant moments where I realized that I was riding up in this elevator holding this very heavy suitcase in my arms and I had the thought, put it down, <laughs> the elevator will take it <laughs> and there we are. It's not that we don't have to do anything, it's like we have to get on the elevator, we have to press the button, we have to pack and, and get there, there's a lot that we have to do, but we don't have to carry it by ourselves. You know, that, that is the, the essential balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, that one of maybe the crossover points between the Buddhist tradition and the Christian tradition um, is exactly this idea of presence and this idea of attention and this idea of a style or quality of engagement which deepens and refines and transfigures presence. And one of the most beautiful things in the tradition that I belong to, the Catholic tradition, is the idea of sacrament. And I know that sacraments are politicized a little bit, and good bit in the institutional church, which I think is totally wrong. But I think that the, uh, that the old definition of sacrament was magic, was wonderful. Uh, and it was that a sacrament is a visible sign of invisible grace, which is lovely. Because it means that the old invisible grace is latently there in everything. And 
that you can call it into action, you know? And that, um, that in all our experiences, that there are secret thresholds where the invisible becomes visible, where the unknown becomes known, where fact turns into possibility, and where darkness turns into light, which is the lovely image of the dawn. And I mean, I think at the heart of the spirit, of the, spirit the twilight and dawn are one. That at the end of the day, all the secret colors which are hidden in the white light gather in the basket of twilight to be received into the old tenebrae. And then in the morning, out of the basket of dawn, all the colors come again. And it's all one circle. And that the creator was somehow, whoever created the universe, loved circles. And loved these magnetic interims where things that are separate discover each other and awaken to belonging. And um, in, the, in the Christian tradition, this is what you could call a theology of resurrection. That in other words, at the heart of darkness, there isn't darkness, but latent light. And that that isn't there just for Christians like. I think all the externalities, we get, we get so caught in the labels and in the particular styles of carriage that each of us is traveling up the mountain up. But tis the one mountain, no matter which side you're traveling or which route you're taking. And I think at the heart of the whole thing, there is this incredibly tender, gentle, poignant unity where nothing is left out, where no one is left out, and where nothing is lost or forgotten. And that's one of the images that I'd have of what spirit means. Um, there's this very famous quotation of the Buddhas in which he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. And a friend of mine once said to me, well, suffering and the end of suffering are two things, not one thing. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, there's a certain way in which they are one thing. Um, because as we, it's not that suffering is considered redemptive, but opening is. And as we open and open and open to joy and to pain, the, the nature of the mind or the heart, which is that open and that free, is the end of suffering. So even though Buddhism has kind of a bad rap as being pessimistic and uh, talking a lot about suffering and, and so on, it's really about suffering and the end of suffering uh, quite completely. But I wanted to ask you a question about the word faith because I'm writing a book about faith from the Buddhist perspective because for me and from that perspective, as far as I understand it, it is that moment when we look at the Buddha sitting under the tree and we say, oh yeah, that can happen for me. 
um, it's somehow taking what is abstract and transfiguring it. It's like a sacrament right there and saying, that can happen for me. I can be free. Um, yet the very word faith can be so laden. The very first time I taught a workshop on faith, I was, I was in L.A., and I spoke all Saturday morning. And I kept asking for questions, but nobody would say anything, which is a bad sign. It's a great <laughs> <And> sign. <laughs> not in this case. You were saying it. <laughs> I was talking and talking and talking and talking, and nobody would say a word. And uh, then the first thing after lunch, the person who happened to be sitting right in front of the tape recorder burst out with, I came to Buddhism to get away from all this garbage. <laughs> you know, there was such a, a sense of faith not being a an avenue to the end of fear, but being the tool of fear, you know, not having enough faith or the right kind of faith and feeling themselves somehow um, bound to someone else's definition of faith. And I find I'm coming up against that a lot uh -huh. as I explore that, that concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before I do a little blast on that, faith is notoriously complex, I'd just love to do a little kind of um, compliment okay. to your notion of uh, the meaning of suffering, you know. For me, one of the things that I find very attractive in our tradition, Christian Catholic tradition, is the utter realism with which suffering is embraced. And put mythically, I suppose, and historically as well, it's about a God who wasn't content to enjoy the safety of the heavens, but risked itself utterly into the danger of the human adventure. Um, and it's very interesting, at the beginning of John's Gospel, John 1.14, you have the Greek phrase, ha logos sarx and the word, the principle of intelligibility, all the rest of it, logos stands for all of that, became flesh. G.K. Chesterton said that he'd have given everything he ever wrote to have written that one sentence. Because it means logos was the principle of the greatest luminosity distance, transcendence. Sarks was the murkiest, muddiest, weakest expression of the human. And what it says is that in this idea of the kind of luminosity at the heart of Christian suffering, that the principle of absolute luminosity is wedded with the principle of vulnerability and fragility in a non-breakable kind of way. And that at the heart of crucifixion, is resurrection. And that suffering, suffering is an awful thing. It's a terrible thing. And like when you hear people talking about suffering, like, do you know, sometimes people are very disrespectful in the way they speak about it. Because they speak too easily. Any of us that have really suffered will know that it's a time when you scrape silently inside the fragile walls of meaning, and you get no echo from anywhere. Suffering is about isolation, it's about pain, it's about the unknown, it's an awful thing. And I think in the Christian thing, there's a full recognition of that, and maybe some kind of gentle, slow pathway through it. It often reminds me of the Aeneid, Virgil's classic, I think that there's, you see, there's an awful lot of old stuff been written about spirituality and all the rest of it. And a lot of it, if you were going to the old desert island, you needn't be over-obsessed like that you wouldn't have brought it with you. 
Whereas if you had a couple of the old classics, like the, the Odyssey is an incredible mystical journey, that, that whole thing of Odysseus. But in Virgil, there was this whole idea that the hero on his journey to found Rome only got enough light for the next step. But the light for the next step only revealed itself when the stepping began to happen. And I, I've talked a little bit too much now, but you can go on a major blast. This just about faith. Faith in, in the old Christian tradition, one of the things I like about the idea of faith in the Christian tradition is that it's so different from what faith is in a cult or in a fundamentalist kind of group. A lot of cult and fundamentalist stuff demands that you leave your intellect at the door before you walk in. One of the lovely things about the old Christian tradition is that theology is there to raise the hardest and most rigorous counter questions so that nothing can be claimed that hasn't submitted itself to the critical vigilance of the intellect. So at the heart of the idea of faith, there's no kind of you have to drop your intellect and all the rest of it and just trust nakedly. There's a lovely kind of co-journey of the questioning and critique of the intellect and the gifts of the heart. And of course, it all means as well that I suppose the journey of faith is the journey of liberating ourselves, or liberating the divine from the unworthy images that we have of it. Thank you. <laughs> that was beautiful. And a, I think a, a beautiful and very chilling description of suffering, um, which led me to think that if one of the uh, most terrible burdens in times of pain and suffering is that, is that awesome sense of isolation, then one of the greatest gifts of compassion is solidarity, its presence rather than trying to fix it, you know, and yeah. make it all right and make the situation better for whomever, as though we knew how, um, it is really presence. Uh, it's coming together, it's acknowledging, and especially in this society where suffering is so um, hidden, yes. it's so yes. dishonored, it's, it's so shameful, to side, yeah. totally pushed to the side, then, then just to acknowledge it and to be with rather than reject is, is a tremendous gift. And I sometimes think of this, it's actually my, uh, one of my favorite remembrances of the Dalai Lama, which is um, in the late 70s, he came to visit our center. We were very young, you know, we had just started the center and uh, in our youth we did something, we did it repeatedly, we would invite these eminent, august people to come thinking, oh, they'll never come, and then they'd come. <laughs> and so we'd have to get ready for, for these visitors who were of, of great eminence. And uh, the Dalai Lama, you know, is not only a great religious figure, but he's also, in effect, an exiled head of state. So we had to arrange all of this security. And the street that the center is on is called Pleasant Street. And it's not very busy. <laughs> but we had to blockade the road, and we had state troopers patrolling the roof with guns and uh, video cameras going. It was a whole huge zooey scene and I had just been in a car accident a little while before and had broken a bone in my foot and was using crutches which I was not very dexterous with and I was in the back of about a hundred people waiting for his car to 
pull up and I felt really badly for myself. I thought, oh, you know, it's like my center and I'm stuck in the back and I can't use the crutches and here I am all alone, it's so terrible. And um, His car pulled up and the Dalai Lama got out and I saw him do something that I have since seen him do time and time again, which is he seems to have an instinct for who in a crowd is suffering the most and he just goes there and that was me. He just, he, I don't even know how he saw me. He got out of the car, he made a beeline through 100 people, came up to me, took my hand, looked me in the eye and said, what happened? <laughs> and it was so beautiful because that, certainly he couldn't make my accident not have happened or make the pain go away or make me any more skillful with the use of the crutches, but that terrible corrosive sense of being so alone and left out and neglected and in the back, it was just gone. And it's one of my great um, inspirations for compassion. It was just that very moment. Because I really believe no one should have to suffer alone. You know, from our side. That it shouldn't be that anyone is rejected because of, of the pain or the difficulty that they're in. Yeah, Tolstoy said somewhere that one of the great human duties was to sow the seeds of compassion in each other's hearts. And I think one of the most chilling things you'd ever meet in your life is someone who has no ability to feel. It's a frightening thing. Sometimes it's an emptiness. Thanks be to God, I've only met it a couple of times. But sometimes it's, a, it's an emptiness. It's just a strange almost sinister vacancy. And at other times, it's a numbing that has happened because of awful pain. And I mean, it's such, it must be such a lonely old place to be caught. Because I think, to talk of belief again, I think that the cold heart can't believe anything. It can believe nothing. And if you look at some of the awful atrocities that happened in this century, Holocaust, all the rest of it, it all derived from many roots, but one of the th things that enables such awfulness and evil to emerge is the separation of thought and feeling. Thought can take off and be its own program and its own ideology, and when the feeling is deadened and subtracted, absolutely anything can happen. And I suppose it's one of the compassion also, I think would include an inner reference to individuality. That sometimes, you know, you'd meet people <laughs> who have the special kind of gift of blanket compassion. Like they could be compassionate about anything. Then you'd wonder too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, you'd be saying, they can't be that good, like, you know. <laughs> so I think that maybe real compassion has an old reference to individuality. And that in a way, you know, Meister Eckhart refers often to outer creation which is separation, because we're all in the bodies like, do you know what I mean? This is, when you leave here tomorrow or whatever, and you go away, there won't be four-fifths of you still hanging back in the room like. You won't be on your way home and say, God, most of me is missing, still back in the Boston Park Plaza. No, it'll all be inside this, because this is where you carry most of the stuff, you know. And in some strange kind of way, compassion is allowing the secret bridges between us
to become real. Like, I can't believe in any of this stuff about creating community. I think the whole project of trying to build community is misplaced. I think community is. It is ontologically there. So the project is more about awakening it. Um, I think in the Hindu tradition, they have this lovely, maybe when we open to questions now, people will have this image more precisely. But there's, uh, there's an image called the net of Indra, which means that between everything, there is connection. And I think the frightening thing about being a humanoid is that we are not alone, really, but that we are dangerously involved with each other in an incredibly intimate but unseen way. And that, as it says in the Old New Testament, the life and death of each of us affects everyone else. And I think that might be the magic when we come into the old eternal thing, heaven nirvana, baby, that we might get a look back and see the secret connections that were there that we never noticed while we were here, you know. Indra's net. <laughs> well, um, back to something you'd said earlier, I think that, or earlier um, this time, that uh, there's considered to be a tremendous power even in opening to one's own pain uh, for that very sake of feeling um, and empathy. Somebody once showed me a study where all these people were plugged into all the different things that could measure things you know, like blood pressure and uh, temperature and so on. And, um, and then these various stories were told and images were shown to the people who were plugged into all of these machines. And several people would say, even though their hearts were pounding and their blood pressure was going up and they were sweating, even though by every measurable device they were having a reaction, they'd say they didn't feel anything. My God. And then the study went on to uh, statistically show that about one in six people are like that. And it was actually considered a study in empathy, which is also like a study in morality, because of course the best kind of morality is not a consciously assumed, self-conscious declaration of morality. Absolutely. It's a natural disinclination to hurt somebody because you know what it feels like to be hurt. Yeah. And so you just don't want to, you yeah. know, just throw yourself into a situation because you know how it would feel to be hurt in that way. And so it's not a set of rules that, you mm -hmm. know, one is either assuming or rejecting. It's that heart movement to include, to, to hold dear someone. And that has very telling implications. If people can't feel their own pain, how can they say, well, I don't want to cause pain? to somebody else. It's, it's like the other is a the other in the objectified sense, and they themselves are like the other to themselves. So there's real value in even opening to and acknowledging our own pain, because that is the, the building of compassion and empathy. Do you yeah, that, just to do a little bit on that. I, that's one of the things I really like about Buddhism, is that um, and I think that that's why a lot of people go towards Buddhism, is because you don't have to carry massive rucksacks of moral ballast to be in the presence. 
And I think that very often in the Christian tradition, and this has been critical now of my own tradition, is that people are given the impression that unless you go through all the kind of doorways of appropriate rulings and prescriptions, that you can't come into the presence, which is totally and utterly wrong. Because the thing about the divine is that for the divine, there are no barriers. The barriers are created by us. And all moral rules are intended to awaken presence, increase compassion, avoid hurt, and give people certain signals of honor, how to act honorably in situations of ambivalence and confusion. And I often, when you'd often hear these great kind of perfect ones talk about some awfulness that has happened, you'd wonder like how they can state this without laughing. Do you know what I mean? When I see some of the right-wing banditos like stating what should be going on, I get fit of laughing and I say, they must be trying hard not to laugh. <laughs> Do you know? And maybe when the camera's away from them, they just burst out laughing. <laughs> because I think that if you know human weakness and ambivalence, you know that all of our profferings and protestations are like lighting a candle to illuminate the night. Because what we're dealing with, or what we're caught in, is a great kind of immensity. And um, the other side of that, I think, is the notion of the divine that we work with. I think the closest thing to everyone is a sense of the divine. And no institution or tradition has a right to exclude or alienate anyone from that sense. The custodians of great traditions are supposed to be the kindest innkeepers of spirit. They're supposed to be the most generous custodians of the doorways. And if you're walking the old path over sore ground, carrying something that's ten times too heavy for you, their duty is to invite you in for rest, affirmation, tenderness, and healing not in any way to censor you. I think one of the things we've forgotten is that the subversive nature of God, goddess, is that there is no judgment at all. Thank you. Now, I'll just say one thing and then I'll open it to questions. Um, because what you said reminded me of um, something I've said, which is that uh, from the Buddhist perspective, the one feeling that is really completely ridiculous to feel is self-righteousness. Uh, you know, and from the Buddhist perspective, of course, we've lived many lifetimes. We've all, we're all trailing uh, an immense number of lifetimes bringing us together into this room right now. And in the course of all these many lifetimes, we've all done everything. Those of us just sitting here together in this room right now, we've all saved one another and hurt one another and loved one another and hated one another and stolen from one another. We've all done everything. And from that perspective, there's no way to look at somebody 
as though to say, I, who am so perfect and immaculate way over here, are looking at you way over there in that sort of bestial thing you're doing, I could never do that, because we have. And even if you don't have that perspective or that cosmology, which certainly many people do not, it doesn't matter. I don't think it takes a huge amount of introspection, honest introspection, to see the range of impulses and fears and hopes and desires that arise in the mind that we may not act out because of who knows why, awareness or grace or whatever, but they're there. It's not so very different. I told one of the groups I did, I think yesterday morning's meditation that um, I have a kind of fantasy sometimes sitting in front of a room full of people that somebody will invent a machine that will be able to amplify people's thoughts and we'll all sit here looking so serene as we do and, and peaceful and we'll plug someone in. <laughs> and then we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what's really going on. Because <laughs> there's a lot. It's everything. It's everything a human being can want and feel and fear. It's all in there for every single one of us. And so it's not that we lose discrimination in a sense of right and wrong, but that sense of utter separation and self-righteousness. It makes no sense. There's no basis in truth for it. I found something um, that I would say was a combination of the two of what you're two talking about, which would be, in Christian terms, redemption. That is, I redeemed that frightened part of myself that, was, that I was trying to control and was trying to control. That's a lovely sentence. I redeemed the frightened part of myself. Lovely. And, and did it with learning how to stay with that, keep my eyes open when they wanted to, which was presence. Mm -hmm. and, Meditation, I guess you call it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I find that that learning that kind of compassion um, was not from the outside, like you're talking about. It came when I found that part of myself, and so I knew what to do then with others. But I wanted to talk about faith, because faith to me recently seems not to be this thing that's outside also, this belief that will... Um, when times are tough, carry me through, or something like that, so much as something that comes from within presence. Faith seems to me a word that comes out of, you talked about you're either in it or you're not, you're on the bus or you're not in presence. Well, I don't think it's an absence word. I don't think it's a concept that came from absence. It seems to me to come when, do I stay open when I'm in presence to can open to what I'm seeing? Faith seems to be the life I live out of that presence or not. It doesn't seem, because I kept beating myself up, I don't have faith when I was in absence. I don't have faith, I don't have this belief, I, I, it's gone. You know, and I felt shitty. But one time recently when I was in presence, I realized, oh, faith is the life I live from here if I dare. And it's sort of about this fear to stay there that, and faith that, that's, as far as I've gotten with it, I wanted to know what you're talking about. 
Yeah, thank you. I love talking about faith. <laughs> um, the word in uh, Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is sada, and it's almost always translated by faith, and it, it literally means to place one's heart upon, to offer one's heart, to give over one's heart, which I believe is the same meaning in, in Christianity. Um, and there are a few things that came to my mind when you were speaking. One um, is that I think one of the bases for being able, two of the bases for being able to offer our hearts is one, knowing we have a heart, and the second is honoring the fact that offering our hearts is a tremendous gift, that it's not something that should be done lightly. You know, it, it, is, it is a gift. Um, and the second thing that came to my mind is that even in um, times when we are not in presence, as, as you say, uh, we are generally offering our hearts to something. Although whether we're offering our hearts to worthy recipients <laughs> is a big question. You know, we, we often are turning our hearts, our sense of integrity, our sense of who we are, our uh, deepest dreams over to something. And maybe what we need is more wakefulness, is just more consciousness to see what are we investing in. Hi, can you hear me? Um, I had a very interesting um, experience with faith. I had a friend of mine call me up because um, some guy she was going out with, um, he did something she didn't think he would do. She wanted to marry him, and he didn't. So she said to me, I don't know why I have faith. Why did I even bother with faith? And I said, but faith is not something that you know about when things are going good. It's when everything falls apart. And then about a month later, I had to take my own advice, and everything fell apart, and I really had to, in my heart, let go and fall and know the faith was that I would be caught. And that was, that was my experience with faith. Thank you. There's a, a beautiful quotation from Rilke, which I, I can't uh, quote really accurately, but in some ways it's the basis of my exploration of faith and what it means, um, where he says something like, uh, you might know. <laughs> I'm something? sure I don't. <laughs> uh, something like, um, do not be frightened if a sadness rises up in you greater than you've ever known before. Life has not forgotten you. Yeah. And that is right there. Life has not forgotten you is, is the basis of my whole exploration, both personal and um, collective, around the issue of faith. Yeah. I think that one of the um, amazing awakenings that faith brings, whatever faith is, is the recognition that, uh, that there is nothing outside God. So that literally we all are within the divine. And this isn't pantheism, which is the claim that the divine is equivalent to the factual 
existence. So that if the world blew up into smithereens tomorrow, the divine would be gone as well. That's not it. This is more panentheism, that everything is within the divine. And um, it's the old story that there's nothing closer to you. St. Augustine had it, Deus in Timio or in Timio Meo, that God is more intimate to me than I am to myself. And that like whether we like it or not, we are implicated in this old eternal pathway. And that sometimes in faith, the period of greatest deepening is the winter time. When the colors are gone, when your nature has retreated inside itself because it's cold and sore, everywhere you turn. And somehow often in that darkness, an incredible springtime is being prepared, you know. But when you're going through it, you don't know that. That's the thing about pain and about things falling apart, is the panic that it'll never come back together again. And that you will be caught in this whirlwind of fragment where there's no belonging. But then one day the storm ceases and you're suddenly in a lovely quiet place. And as you look around, you see the fruit of what your journey has earned that you never thought possible. Uh, I still see this um, Christian-Buddhist dialogue as something that still feels unique to me. Um, I was raised a Catholic. I went to Catholic schools. I have to say that Catholicism to me also felt very much about sin, punishment. Um, I also went to the Catholic University of America. <laughs> God, you got the full there. voltage. <laughs> <laughs> I will say there I was required to take four semesters of philosophy and four of religion, and it was there that I got very interested and studied all the Eastern religions. Um, what amazed me uh, was when I was studying Buddhism, and my practice now, which I just read The Good Heart by the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and all of these things. And I do feel very much like I come from this tradition. And at the same time, it was when I was reading and coming to know and understand through Buddhism, I thought, Jesus said that. And all of a sudden, it was like, that's what he was saying. This is what it's about. And I felt I once more was coming completely back into Catholicism. And I also wanted to say, but I still do feel that uh, in the Vatican and in the Catholic Church, there are these things that happen uh, and that are said where I still feel like this is the one religion and the one way of looking at things and that still cause conflicts and uh, I go back and forth with it and I'd like to hear about your comments on that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, I think your, your experiences you narrated is very interesting because I think that one of the things about a great tradition, a long ancient tradition is that nearly everything that could happen within it 
has already happened. But the aficionados who contemporarily mediate the tradition will never pretend that. And part of the reason that a lot of people drop out of their own traditions is that they don't actually know them and that they take the given dogmatism of a very narrow, unthinking kind of description of things as the truth, whereas that isn't the case at all. Second thing I'd say is that there is no figure in the Western Middle Eastern tradition as domesticated as Jesus. And that religion has really tried to give us images, in lots of cases now, not always, where his wildness is radically suppressed. He was unbelievable. He was a marginal figure who fell out towards the edges of his own tradition. And something amazing awoke in this guy. And like, he didn't know from the beginning that he was, we'll just go for one more minute. No, this is he wonderful. Didn't, he didn't know, you know, but he didn't <laughs> know learning. from the beginning that he was God, right? That came to him. And imagine like, ima the book I'd love to read is a book that's never been written, which would be the autobiography of Jesus. What was going on, you know? On the afternoon that he discovered that he was God-like, what did he do for the rest of the day? <laughs> do you know? <laughs> do you know, what do you do for the rest of the day, like when you discover that you're God and that there's a big cost? There's a big cost on this, you know? Anything I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, that there's massive cost and that the road ahead is utter, freely chosen now, not masochistic stuff but freely chosen that the heart and the body, the tent of clay, becomes the tent that's willing to open to take on all human pain. One of the most powerful things in the Western literary tradition on Jesus is in uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, book one, uh, Ivan's great speech called The Legend of the Grand Inquisitor where Jesus comes back to 16th, 17th century Spanish Inquisition, and they imprison him and put him in jail. And the cardinal, who's the leading inquisitor, goes to interview him and says, why did you come back to interfere with our work? He accuses Jesus of expecting too much from people, and he says that people are not able for the freedom that he attributed to them. So he uses the phrase then, I don't know what the original Russian is, we have corrected your work. And we have given the people miracle, mystery, and authority, because that's what they need. The other wild book in theology, it's almost impossible to read like you'd want to be faithful to keep after it. The best book which brings Jesus together with the suffering and all the rest of it in the 20th century is a book by Tübingen theologian Jürgen Moltmann called The Crucified God. It's an incredible, powerful, brilliant book. Still now see that this is, do you feel this is still going on in the present day? Yeah, that's a fair kind of question. Um, 
I do. I'm very disappointed at a lot of the religious leaders in the Catholic tradition that I belong to. A lot of the appointments are political. A lot of the people who have become bishops and leaders are careerists. They're functionaries who are not really into the old vision, metaphysical kind of thing. But it also has to be said that in the Catholic tradition, there's always been a great tension between the mystical and the institutional, which is proper, because there's nothing as dangerous as the mystical. And people like, you'd meet some people now that would be off on mystical trips, like, and uh, they'd be describing things that no one has ever seen or heard at all, you know? <laughs> so there's a certain kind of craziness that goes with the <laughs> ecstasis of the old mystical. So you need some tough conversant so that you get a balance between the two things. I think that there could, the thing that saddens me about the way the church is, is that we live in a time of unprecedented spiritual hunger. When people know that nice cars, beautiful homes, things, position, status, don't do it for the spirit, that you need something spiritual. And they're starving for it. And the thing that disappoints me is consumerism is the new religion. The new God is the God of quantity and the liturgy is advertising and consumption. And the custodians of the tradition are more worried about the shade of paint on the deck chairs when the bloody Titanic is going down. That's what I find upsetting. Or to use another image, they are custodians of great granaries of nourishment. The nourishment is there for the people. It should be given out generously and everyone included. I've talked too much now. That was Something maybe you could say a little bit more about, John, that you're touching on, and that is that uh, my journey has led me uh, from a Catholic basis, which I converted to, and then left the church for all the reasons that you're speaking of. And <clears throat> what actually brought me back to the essence of Christ was the Buddhist teachings. And along the way, I, I went through a lot of esoteric paths and a lot of the Alice Bailey material, which some of you may be familiar with. And uh, what's very much stressed there is something that's referred to as the missing years of Christ, in which where he was, was studying with the Eastern masters. Um, and that there is much more of a union with Buddhist in Christ. And he, he never came out and said, well, Buddhist was a teacher, but he was embraced uh, in the essence of that. Um, the other thing I was remembering as you were speaking of the idea of sin and suffering, somewhere along the way I, I heard and learned this, that the Aramaic sin in the Aramaic language, which was the language of Christ, meant missing the mark. You took a left turn, it might have been better to take a right turn, but it had no judgment in it, it had no pronouncement in it, it was something about being out of alignment with relationship to your union with God. So this always struck me, I think, of all the many mea culpas and all the many times in confession that I felt like an absolute jerk and probably lied, too. Um, <laughs> there because of embarrassment, because of shame, and felt more shameful when I came out of the thing. And that was such a liberation. 
Uh, one last quick thing that I was remember when you said the Rilke quote, we talked about the duality and the getting in relationship. One of my favorite quotes from Rilke around this is, uh, I think it's from his letters, and John probably knows he can more than I, but I think it's from his letters. Uh, he said, um, when somebody asked him about this issue, he says, what do you do with it? How do you correct it? And he says, take your well-disciplined strengths and stretch them between your two opposing poles because inside human beings is where God learns. Mm. Oh, lovely. There's a group there. <laughs> I'd just like to hear you talk a little more about something you touched on earlier, which it seems to be there's a kind of forgetfulness about Buddha's suffering and Christ's joy, his wildness. And the other distinction is the difference in traditions where um, people strive to achieve Buddhahood as opposed to becoming Christ-like. Um. Well, I can't really speak in a comparative sense, you know. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what it means to become Christ-like. I don't think we can think of Buddhahood as a um, state, if, if that was the import of your question. Uh, but more um, as the symbol of a few things. One is the complete actualization of our own potential. Um, and this, I think, is really maybe at the heart of the Buddhist teaching and its role in our time. Um, you know, there was a, a Time Magazine article on Buddhism in America, America's fascination with Buddhism, it was called, and there was a quotation from a Catholic sister, Sister Mary Margaret Funk, who said something like, um, what American Buddhism has done is, in effect, and again, this is not an accurate, completely accurate quotation, but she said, in effect, what American Buddhism has done is take the teachings of spirituality and giving them back to the people. And she said this, uh, from her point of view, this was gonna transform Judaism, this was gonna transform Christianity, and this was gonna transform uh, civilization. Um, and it certainly transformed me, <laughs> because I think that is the essence of Buddhism. It's, it's the living reality that includes all of us. And I just quoted in the workshop I did one of the uh, turning points of my own life was when one of my early teachers, very early teachers in India, looked at me and said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. And it was probably the first time in my life I think anybody looked at me with that conviction, like you can. You know, you can really break through the habituated prison of your mind, you really can actualize a potential for, for care, for connection, for belonging, for being at home in this life, for feeling something greater than your limited sense of who you are. You can, because the Buddha, after all, was just a human being. And he was a human being who had some very deep questions about the nature of life and where happiness was to be found. If, it's, if the body is so um, changing, and the mind is so changing, you know, where is happiness to be found that isn't so changing? Was his basic question. And it said that whatever resolution or answer he came to, he found through the power of his own awareness. And that potential f 
for, for great awareness and understanding exists in every single one of us. And there's no need to call yourself a Buddhist in any way. In fact, to be truly accurate, we'd say the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. That's a much later Western invention, that word. He didn't teach Buddhism. He taught a way. You know, he taught a path. And it's a path that invites personal participation. It's not a spectator sport. It invites complete immersion in that possibility and offers methodology to, to help actualize it. Um, you know, and I say Buddhism, and every time I say it, I think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> because it, it, uh, it comes out, you know, but it doesn't, it's not true. That's why the Buddha wasn't depicted for, I don't know, three or 400 years by anything other than a tree or footprints, you know, because it's meant to evoke away. And it's, when we look at the Buddha, we're meant to see ourselves. That's, that's what's really important. Um, you, your question was very penetrating and very good. Uh, I think that one of the things that is really neglected is the joyous side of Christ. And um, I suppose maybe there's an overemphasis, but I wanted to say that deliberately, particularly in this society. There's an overemphasis on the darkness and on the suffering. But there's also maybe a forgetfulness of the joy of resurrection. And that in the old resurrection way of being, that there is delight, dance, and celebration. Because it's about a great kind of homecoming. I have a small little bit of suspicion myself of it. Because sometimes when you see the real happy, happy people who are clapping with Jesus, you kind of want to be putting, do you know, this old Kantian physical space between yourself and themselves. Because it's... Uh, it's uh, it's too fast, you know, it's too easy. Um, there's a lovely phrase from St. Irenaeus in the second century when he said that the glory of God is the human person fully alive. So that the actual call at the heart of the Christian thing is a call to fullness of life. He said himself, I have come that you may have joy and that your joy may be complete. So there's that lovely imperative of celebration and recognition at the heart of it. To become Christ-like, this is a tricky territory. There is a tradition in the Catholicism Christianity called the Imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ, based on a book by Thomas Akempis back several centuries. And um, I have trouble with that myself because I think that the that the fascinating thing at the heart of Christianity is the principle of intimacy and the principle of individuality. That in other words, God didn't become an idea, but became a poet carpenter in Nazareth. And that individuality is the temple of soul and spirit. And I think that any notion of becoming Christ-like which wants to wipe or annihilate the density of personal individuality into a blank, 
kind of amorphous Christ shape is blasphemous. I think that the call of Christianity is to a call to the full awakening of an individuality which is creative, compassionate, and able to work against itself. And I think that very often in the tradition that that has been forgotten kind of completely. So the idea would be that at the heart of divinity is massive differentiation. And if you like, that each one of us come from a different place in the circle of the divine. And something's coming alive in you that's not coming alive in me. But all together, we need the counterpoint and complement of each other's radiance, difference, and luminosity. And that so, at the heart of the whole thing, is beautiful spirituality of integrity, which respects the unique shape of each soul. Would each of you give your own definition of a soul versus a spirit? We need the woman with the drum for that definition. <laughs> uh, well, neither is actually a word from the Buddhist tradition. So um, I translate, you know. Uh, And I wouldn't make necessarily a distinction between the two. Um, I know there's psychological distinctions that can be made, but um, I come back to um, actually it's an ex part of what I just said about the Buddha looking for that which would not change or would not die. And I come back to the example of one of my teachers who was a woman who um, uh, had had tremendous, tremendous loss and suffering in her life where um, she uh, had three children and then two children died and her husband died and she became completely grief-stricken, um, bedridden, so that she was living in Burma at the time and her doctor said to her, if you don't do something about your mind, you're gonna die. You're gonna literally die of a broken heart. And because it was Burma, he said you should go learn how to meditate. And she um, looked around her, she says, and she thought, okay, what can I take with me when I die? You know, can I take my jewels? Can I take my saris? Can I take my dowry? Can I even take my daughter, her, her one remaining living child? And, and she said no. So then she said, I'm going to go to the meditation center and find that which does not die. Find that which is um, unchanging. You know, and, and so she did. And so when uh, I hear those words of soul or spirit or whatever, that's usually what I translate it into. You know, something that um, is not the ordinary basis. It's not the place we normally rest our... Uh, hopes and fears, which are things that constantly change, but something that that will not die. 
Yeah. I think that um, the question is very valid. And we need to distinguish, I think. But all distinction is merely distinction and isn't a description of a separation. Um, there are two ways of defining things. You can give a definition which holds a reality within a certain limiting frame so that you do the contour and that's within that is what you're talking about. Outside it is not. Another way of approaching definition is to find the language family which reflect the presence of something. Second way of defining is more generous. It's more complementary, and it doesn't try to cage the kind of reality. I think that my old way of looking at it is this, is that I think spirit is everywhere, but that soul is somehow the principle of individuation and individuality. But that's, that there's no place that soul isn't dovetailing into spirit. And that the magic of being in soul, like and that the, body, that the soul isn't just in the body. When I was doing the old thing on Celtico magic yesterday, I was talking about the fact that like we always thought the soul was inside in the body somewhere. And then when the body died, the soul did a runner. <laughs> but that it's kind of not like that. The body is actually in the soul. And therefore, that the most intimate point in the soul is where it dovetails into spirit. The great person to read on this is Meister Eckhart, who said that there's a place in the soul that separation or sadness or time or nothing can touch. And that's the eternal place inside everyone no matter how hidden or buried it might actually be. I also think that, we could be talking about this forever, like, but that the soul is also somehow that which holds memory and holds imagination too. And that, like the word that Charn used at the beginning about aspiration, it's lovely in the Christian tradition that the third presence in the divine, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit. The, the way that that spirit comes about is spiratio, through breath. And the recognition that all activity of the Holy Spirit in life is the activity of inspiration. And any of you that are involved in creativity, whether it's in a friendship, relationship, or aesthetic work, will know that you work and work and crucify yourself working to a form and an intention. But yet the most beautiful things that arise in your creation are surprises and gifts, things that you could never have anticipated at all. And I think that one of the things that fascinates psychologists and philosophers is to try and work out the secret grammar of association between thoughts that make up consciousness. And that's where I think the soul is way ahead of us and knows exactly what's going down. And that we could, <laughs> that we could really know, but that we could live totally different lives if we trusted that more oblique side of our consciousness, which knows where we're going anyway.
It's a lovely question, yeah. though. This is making it to a great PhD thesis on it. Okay. <laughs> Honest to God. Well, just to follow up on that question, I know some of the tools have come forth in this workshop and others, but just again, you know, how to open up to being fully present, to letting the soul work its magic, how to get out of my own way. Some tools, perhaps, or... <laughs> Um, you know, I would say simply, we, we have just like one minute um, left to be together, but... There's, it's amazing, up here, like, you can't see what's going down there among you. But there is one among you, and I looked there for a minute ago, and she wasn't looking at all, but I looked, and there was this thing up ten minutes. <laughs> now she has it turned, and there's two minutes on it. <laughs> it's lovely. Um. For me, that, that whole uh, answer resides in, well, two things. One is being mindful of this moment, and the other is the ability to begin again, which is completely magic. That's beautiful. You know, uh, mm. we can be conscious or present in a single moment. We really can. It's not that hard, like right now. Uh, and then we forget. We get distracted. We get lost. We get scattered. Um, and in that moment when we realize that has happened, it's simply to begin again. And, and that is the whole evolution of the process. Yeah, could I just maybe uh, respond to your lovely question with a poem? Because I think one of the amazing ways of being present is through attention to the magic ghosts that we call words. And this old poem is called Via Contemplativa, which I wrote last year, and it's about wondering where words come from. Where do they come from, and who makes them? And it's just three verses. Via Contemplativa. Is the word the work of some ancient one who quarries the green mountain for the hard deposit, refines it under black dust that a bellows blows red, hammers it to a wafer on the white anvil until it can carry its own loss, the anger of the withering fire, the unstruck echo of the mountain, yet succumb to breath like a butterfly to the breeze? Is the word the work of someone who tills the blue field, unearths its dark plenitude for the tight seed to release its thought into the urgent ferment of clay, searching to earthen the light and come to voice in a word of grain that can sing free in the breeze, bathe in the yellow well of the sun, avoid the attack of the bird, and endure the red cell of the oven until memory leavens in the gift of bread. Is the word the work of someone who is given to search the water for its secret, of its will to flow through the heart of a mountain and draw no attention to the night where no light comes 
beneath such solid, stacked silence. To river through the entangled mind of a city and not become involved in its distraught grammar of echo. Stream through fields that can never leave their staid trees and sad stones. Take the light like a restless music. Smile up at the serious bridges until it offers all its knowledge into the huge new voice of the ocean. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs>